This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest in this episode is Christy Picicaro, the author of The Military Enlightenment, War and Culture from Louis XIV to Napoleon. And the book was published by Cornell University Press in 2017 originally, but came out in a new paperback edition uh, at the end of 2020. Hi there, Christy. Hi there, Roxanne. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for inviting me. So, Christy, I've been asking a lot of my guests, you know, how life has been during this era of global pandemic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you are, where you've been, how you've been doing? Yeah, such a big and important question. Thanks for asking. Um, I think I'm starting to breathe a little bit now, thankfully. Uh, Mm -hmm. My family uh, survived the pandemic, uh, which is already saying a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, but with all of the diversity work that I've been doing in my institution at George Mason University, where I'm an associate professor of history and French, and I'm also the director of diversity in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Mm and was uh, working at a university level, co-chairing a committee of our uh, anti-racism and inclusive excellence task force on university policies and practices. So reviewing all university policies and practices, thinking about anti-racism and anti-discrimination. So really, you know, that, that moment of the pandemic hitting of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, uh, and the return of discussions about Adama uh, Traoré, you know, all of that really engaged me uh, in an intense way. I felt the need to to, to step up um, mm-hmm. my presence, uh, my leadership uh, within my institution, in my community, uh, on, at a national level in our discipline. So I feel like I have been uh, sprinting for two years. And uh, I'm starting to breathe because I'm on sabbatical. I just simply was able to step away. I just spent three months in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews. And I'll make a plug for them, their Center for French History and Culture. They they have a fellowship there that they run. And I was so fortunate to have been their fellow for this uh, semester. And so that was just absolutely idyllic, fantastic intellectual community, beautiful place. So I moved out there with my family and took a break from race in America. Christy, the other question I always ask people is, you know, why France? How did it happen that you became a a historian of France? Yes. How did France happen to me is (laughs) is is a funny question, but it's actually something that I've been asking myself I think in a more serious way than ever before in these past couple of years. Mm. Um, You know, I think three things made France happen to me. Um, One is sheer serendipity. Another one is passion. And then another one is prestige Mm. um, in the face of misogynoir, anti-Black racism uh, against women. So there's sort of a dark turn in the end, but that's been very revealing to me. Um, The serendipity one is the funny one. Uh, so I was an undergraduate. Uh, I dropped out of pre-med, which was boring me to tears. <laughs> and so uh, I, I was studying African-American studies, Italian, doing some East Asian studies. And at the same time, I had begun to sing opera. 
And uh, so, yes, <laughs> I, had, I had a first career um, before coming into the academy, before doing my PhD. So I was singing opera at the Westminster Choir College uh, with the brilliant, wonderful um, teacher named Julie Christensen. So uh, that conservatory is where one of my previous vocal coaches had gone and then also was just in the town of Princeton, just a few steps away. So I would make the pilgrimage over there every week. Um, and was taking voice lessons and doing some sight singing, some of the uh, musicological work, um, and then just music skills. And uh, Julie Christensen, my teacher, said, well, listen, you are a young gal, but you are ready to go. Uh, You're ready to perform. So how would you like to fly to the south of France to Nice? What? Yes, what? Uh, with mind you, I am like uh, this biracial uh, African descended and Italian uh, woman, a descendant of of immigrants from upstate New York, public school educated. Like this was not flying to the south of France to do anything really wasn't on my radar. <laughs> so, um, anyways, uh, so uh, this is what happened. I uh, went to Nice with uh, this absolutely splendid uh, uh, pianist, Dalton Baldwin, who actually died in 2019. Uh, Mm. So Dalton, uh, we're still talking about you as we should. Uh, He was was such a beautiful pianist that his expression while playing with singers was at the same level of virtuosity and, and, and presence as the singers themselves. So, wow, what incredible privilege to, to work with him. So I went to Nice with Dalton and with Lorraine Newbar from, from Juilliard. And the future, I thought, was opened up for me. I saw myself singing opera there, driving a yellow Vespa, and <laughs> living in this, what, what was predominantly where I was hanging out, an Italian community, which worked for me because I didn't speak any French. So, um, so I was speaking Italian, uh, eating gnocchi, singing opera. And what happened was that uh, Dalton and Lorraine got me into singing art songs, which are uh, poems that are set to music. So I started singing these poems in French by Paul Verlaine, by Charles Baudelaire that had been set to music by Claude Debussy. I fell in love absolutely with the poetry of Guillaume Apollinaire um, from uh, the very beginning of the 20th century. um, And that was set to music by Poulenc, who is still my favorite composer. Mm. So um, I came back to Princeton and started studying French literature and wound up majoring in in comparative literature with a thesis on representations of the Fête Galante, um, Mm. which were these aristocratic garden parties of the 17th and 18th centuries um, as they were interpreted through different media and historical moments uh, by painter Antoine Bateau and later by Paul Verlaine. I had been singing these poems uh, as they were set to music later by Debussy. Mm -hmm. So that's the passion part. That's the the passion, serendipity and passion parts. Then there's the prestige and misogynoir parts. (laughs) Mm. which is, I really would say, only something I've been able to verbalize in the past two years in this moment of reckoning with my own personal history and with our society. So I'll say about that, that as an undergraduate at Princeton and well before that, I really had a keen sense that as an African descended woman of color, child, as I said, of Afro-German and Italian immigrant families, that my ambitions were unwelcome. And at times, I would say inconceivable in the ivory tower and in, let's say, analogous places that Mm. in general were not meant to uplift people like me or people like you, Roxanne. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I know you know this well, that I was feeling like an outsider and I was being judged by certain people as inferior because of my background, because of implicit bias. And this was despite the factual list of my achievements. So this is something that I've I've explored publicly with this term discriminatory gaslighting um, in some Mm -hmm. articles, in an NPR interview, this sense that 
people were sort of gaslighting me as they do many others into thinking that I wasn't enough and that I shouldn't be there. So, you know, it wasn't so much an imposter syndrome as a primary phenomenon. It was more like all the signals that we get and the things that are said to us directly that, uh, that indicate that we're, we're, we're not meant to be where we are. So facing this insidious culture and at times really blatant moments of racism and sexism, I understood uh, as many have before me and as unfortunately people are understanding now that I needed to arm myself somehow. Mm. And I felt that a good way to do that was with prestige as a way of making space for myself in the room, uh, if not even space at the table. So the prestige of the French language, of French literature and philosophy was appealing to me um, in this quest to be seen for what I am, uh, which, uh, you know, an intelligent, creative, high achieving individual who can have impact and who deserves to be in these places and who hopefully, and it's my goal, uh, wants to change things for the better through my scholarship, through public engagement and community work and and trying to clear the way so that other people of color can be seen and valued and they can just go ahead and pursue their dreams without the weight of uh, these pressures and of the traumas that mm-hmm. come with them. So, um, you know, I'm very thankful uh, to have had you as a, as a partner in talking through this, in, in doing this work together um, and Tyler Stovall, who passed away in mm-hmm. December 21, who I know meant a lot to both of us. He was a true role model uh, to me and to many others in this. Wow. I mean, Christy, I, wanna, I do want to talk about your book and I promise we will. But I think, you know, everything that you've said is so important for, well, for me to hear, but also for everyone else to hear. And, you know, I recognize couple of things in the story that you told and and I think there are a lot of other people who who would say that as well. I want to know now, ask you now, how did you come to the subject of this book and if there are connections you want to make between what you just said and and that path, uh, you know, feel free, but how did you come to work on military culture? <laughs> Um, and, and I say that I say that as somebody who works on military culture. So I know, not, I know. <laughs> not, I mean, because I also I want to be like, how did you? Let's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, tell tell us how how that happened. Yeah, thank you. I, there is a connection. There is a connection, Roxanne, in the sense that so I, I did my PhD at Stanford. I think uh, in that environment, I again with my prestige radar. Uh, I sensed, uh, and not erroneously with Keith Michael Baker uh, there and Dan Edelstein arriving, that the Enlightenment had this certain kind of cultural capital within the academy, that the serious people were talking about the Enlightenment. And I was, of course, wrong in the sense that there there, there were absolutely stunning scholars. Uh, for example, Elisabeth Moudimbe-Bouilly, who was at uh, Stanford at the time, absolutely brilliant scholar, you know, working on on, on Francophone subjects uh, and philosophy. And so, you know, but it was just the way that that I had been trained to function, to look to where the, the fancy white guys were and try to go over there. And so, and so- Sorry, um, I'm going to need a moment. I know, I know. And then, yeah, we'll see if this makes it into the final recording, but I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah. So I had that sense. And then I thought, well, there's also this bonus of the fact that this was the era of abolition and, you know, the first abolition in France. And so I said, okay, this is good. Let me, let me continue. And so I was sort of doing the canon work in both history and in literature. So sort of on the lit side, I was reading The Dangerous Liaisons, The Liaisons Dangereuses um, mm-hmm. by Chauderlo de la Clos. And there is, uh, you know, a, a predominant feature of the of that narrative of that epistolary novel is the presence of a kind of military vocabulary and military approaches to seduction, to jockeying for power in the elite society of of, of Paris, in which the characters are are, are operating. And so I, I noticed this and. Folks had really only treated that as an extension of an age-old metaphor 
mm. from the troubadours, from from long ago um, of the woman as a citadel that must be conquered. Mm. Um, but as I was reading it, I thought, you know, this seems too literal, though. There's another depth uh, to this vocabulary that makes it for me more of a of a way of thinking rather than a facile literary uh, sort of uh, uh, device that's mm. been used for centuries. And then, so I looked into it and of, clo- of course discovered that Laclos was a Freemason and an officer in the French army, that he mm. wrote part of the novel while he was stationed in, in the southwest of France in order to help oversee the construction of fortifications against the British. Mm-hmm. So I said, holy moly, why are, why are literary scholars not talking about this? It, it, how is it that not engaging with the historical approach is actually contributing to our missing vital information that would help us to interpret texts? So I sort of had that moment on the literary side. And then on the history side was the moment where I'm learning more about this classic Western Civ narrative of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is this time of illumination from whence our most excellent values and civilizations <laughs> derive. It, it was a time of universalist values. And this voice. it's my Enlightenment, hero, it's my Enlightenment heroic voice. It's awesome. um, <laughs> right. So, you know, universalism, cosmopolitanism, scientific exploration, humanitarianism, it's back, the voice is back. All these projects <laughs> to perfect society. And then most definitely projects regarding pacifism. And so there are sort of these book-ended works that people referred to, the Abbé de Saint-Pierre and then Immanuel Kant later in in the century talking about perpetual peace. And so I was reading all of this and at the same time uh, had started because of the dangerous liaisons looking a little bit into military history to, to find more about military, find out more about military thought. And then I quickly realized that military historians referred to this same period as the second hundred years war between France and Britain. There is the war of Spanish succession at the beginning of the 18th century, the war of Austrian succession uh, in the 1740s, the seven years war uh, that happened 1756 to 1763. After that, France is involved in the American revolution. After that, the French Revolutionary Wars, and then we arrive at Napoleon. So I I said, wow, these are two radically different visions of what the Enlightenment was about. And uh, I I was reading at the time also David Bell, his The First Total War, such an important book that was talking about the culture of war. So I said to myself, these things, military and Enlightenment, we can't see these as this this expression as an oxymoron, which is really what it what it appeared to be according to that that Western Civ narrative. I said there must be ways that the spheres of war and the military intersected with that of the Enlightenment. If we've got uh, students and other uh, types of, of of scholars who listen to this wonderful podcast, this would be the moment when I would encourage them to just ask those big questions, to, to mm-hmm. go ahead and shake up disciplinary conventions because important historical discoveries are sometimes hiding in plain sight. I want to ask you about the French empireness of this project mm-hmm. and you know what that means yeah. during this period that you're looking at in the book. And I guess, you know, going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, how you think of this book as doing the history of the Enlightenment, doing military history in this period differently, and what it means to think in terms of French empire during this period, and especially overseas empire. Yeah, thank you for this question, Roxanne, because it's really a key point um, mm. in this book. And it and it is uh, one of the ways in which I wanted uh, to be sure uh, to, to insert a different way of doing things and a different way of thinking than many of the military uh, historians with whom I had been engaging because the, the continental army of France was such an institution and it grows exponentially during this period of time mm-hmm. under Louis XIV. Um, the fiscal military state becomes a colossal 
entity and and disaster, in fact, as as my colleague Guy Rollins talks about in his work. And but but somehow the focus was really always on the Continental Army, and I found that to be utterly shocking, knowing mm-hmm. that by the late eighteenth century France had navigated dispatched missionaries, scientific teams, established trade posts, colonized lands on six of the seven continents and had sailed three of the five of the world's oceans. You know, uh, there were merchants active uh, in slave trade ports in West Africa, sugar plantations, penal colonies in the Caribbean, fisheries, fur trade posts in North American colonies, comptoir on on the Indian subcontinent, and in mm-hmm. China, uh, uh, where there was uh, uh, trade, and then of course naval outposts in Madagascar and the Mascarene Islands, economic hubs throughout the Mediterranean. F- the, the French are all over the place, and these all became uh, sort of theaters of war. People didn't have an understanding, uh, or didn't bother to understand that military officers occupied and soldiers uh, occupied a number of important positions. Uh, in these spaces, that war was a space of cultural encounter, that military men were governors general, diplomats, explorers, cartographers, pseudo-ethnographers, who actually relayed information about these places, their leaders, their cultures, their militaries from on the ground, as opposed to some theorists, uh, you know, uh, on in Europe who said asinine, often completely racist things. Um, one mm-hmm. of my favorite stories of that is uh, this French officer, Zachary de Paty de Bonneville, so Bonneville, who absolutely tore apart this Dutch ethnographer, Cornelius de Pau, who wrote this work called uh, Philosophical Research on the Americans, or, or mm-hmm. Interesting Memoirs uh, in the Service of the History of the Human Species, uh, which was published um, in several editions in the in the late 1760s and early 1770s, where de Pau has just shockingly uh, derogatory things to say about for individuals who are part of First Nations and indigenous tribes. And so mm. Bonneville, uh, who spent significant time uh, in North America, wrote his own treatise, which was called, uh, the, the French title is crazy and long, but in English, it would be on America and Americans. And he mm. refutes Depaul's work. And he says, you know, this guy doesn't have sufficient on-the-ground experience. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not even going to bother to refute what he says, uh, uh, you know, one by one, his claims. But I'm just going to speak th- these in- important framing concepts, which is to know that there are there's an extraordinary diversity of Indigenous peoples. It's not just mm-hmm. one race or one type of person. There are many different nations. There are subcultures, national characters that exist among them. And that indigenous peoples also, depending on their role, had differing personal status and and that each of these individuals had an autonomous identity and personality. So he, you know, was one of those voices who said this this guy, DePaul, who's in infantilizing indigenous peoples and treating them as objects is completely wrong. And that, and that, mm-hmm. in fact, inv- in indigenous peoples were, uh, you know, breathing, meritorious hum- human beings. They are subjects, not objects. So, you know, I think it, it's just so key to understand that that these military folks ha- had on the ground experience. They had an ambiguous uh, and often unarticulated relationship to empire, but in some instances, uh, certainly there were supporters of empire. Uh, but there were others who uh, were very critical of European cultural and colonial hegemony that would sort of put them into this other category of thinkers who were, in the end, against empire. So, you know, I really wanted to bring in this global perspective um, because it's part of that history. And it's and we can't I, I, you know, we can no longer, I think, pretend that France was this you know, and that the military was this continental enterprise alone and just focus on the big names and the great battles. Mm -hmm. Many individuals and groups were involved in these wars. I I talk about them, the female soldiers, free men of color who served in the Chasseurs d'Amérique in Saint-Domingue, thousands and thousands 
of, of soldiers of any background, you know, who were who were Frenchmen, who were really mm-hmm. in many ways voiceless and in some cases invisible in in the hierarchical society of the Ancien Régime. And, and then historians were sort of replicating those same processes of silencing or, 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 or not seeing. And so I really mm-hmm. wanted to relay uh, the experiences uh, of these individuals as much as possible. It was a challenge. Uh, I think with more time, I, I could have done better, but I tried my best to reach them through the intermediaries that relayed some version of their voices and, and made them visible uh, in some way to the crown, to the public, and to us, uh, to posterity. So, Christy, if I say that the Military Enlightenment, this book, is a history of affect, mm. what say you, Christy Peticaro? Mm, well, Roxanne Panchasi, <laughs> I really, I like that. you. This is why I knew this was going to be so much fun, because you really are just so brilliant. Um, that's, I, I think that that is a key Point. It's a key point. And, and that sort of grows out of a couple of things. Uh, on the one hand, the vision of war and the mentality toward war at this time, you know, played, played an important role here. Uh, as I talk about in the intro to the book, people during this time thought that war was, and I quote Voltaire, an inevitable scourge. Um, they felt that it was necessary for sovereign states in an age of global capitalism uh, and what we would now refer to as racial capitalism with chattel slavery, um, that it was beneficial for reputations of sovereigns uh, and their states in the culture of glory, the glory mm. uh, um, that was really uh, centered at this time. And then also the sense that there were many problems in what was going on in the military sphere for France, that the global scale of war was untenable with this disastrous fiscal military state. There were huge, pretty devastating military uh, failures, especially after the Seven Years' War. You know, French, the French seed Louisiana, uh, west of the Mississippi to Spain. Uh, they lose New France, Nouvelle France, except for, for uh, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, they, uh, in India, are, are, are decimated. French trading posts were seized. Um, they are returned, but all fortifications were destroyed. So there's not going to be mm-hmm. any strong military presence there anymore. And the, the Royal Navy captured all French establishments in West Africa and only returned the island of Gorée in the Treaty of Paris of 1763. Uh, France retwi- retains Guadeloupe, Martinique, uh, uh, St. Lucia, which had also been captured by the Brits, uh, but they relinquished Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, the Grenadines, Tobago. So there's this a lot of trouble around this question of war, which made it sort of a perfect and urgent terrain for Mm. critical exploration and efforts to enlighten um, or to ameliorate. And, and, you know, another brilliant colleague, Medlin Doby, um, remarks that this period saw the appearance, and I'm quoting her, the appearance of the first true meta-discourse on the aims and effects of war. And so this is where that question about affect and emotion comes in. These thinkers and actors are inheritors of Renaissance humanism in many ways, um, in combination with the culture of moral sentiment. Hervé Drévillon has theorized about military humanism, out of the Renaissance's notion that war is essentially human in character, not so much divine in character, and that humans have the capacity, therefore, to, de- to define its principles and to bring rationality to it. And this, this concept of rationality and, and what becomes a sort of Cartesian warfare, the Guild de Cabinet, cabinet warfare under Louis XIV mm. in, this, in the 17th century and into the 18th, you know, is sort of evincing this, this rationality. But as the 18th century advances, an emotional and moral imperative get layered onto this, sort of shifting the nexus of change away from just states and uh, states themselves, but toward individuals. You know, this meant concepts of moral philosophy coming into military thought. So humanity, sensibilité, sociabilité, mm. honnêteté, civilité, these should be brought into military thought and practice. And ultimately, this 
starts to give an image of, of what's in uh, the encyclopedia article on war, which is um, the encyclopedia, I'm talking about the Diderot and d'Alembert, mm-hmm. which is this idea of making good war, right. faire bonne guerre. And, and that's where that question of affect comes in. And so related, but maybe not totally overlapping question, how is this a, a gender history and, a, and I guess more specifically a history of masculinity? Mm-hmm. Yes. I talk about this in the second chapter of the book, which is mm-hmm. um, which is specifically about martial sociability and um, and masculinity. So so that's that's where I, I start to de- develop this subject. And indeed, there's a sense. Uh, Christopher Tazi uh, has written a book about um, about uh, foreigners in in the French armies, more focusing on the revolution. But there's a chapter on uh, on the earlier in the 18th century, and I think it's important to understand that in the continent, in the continental armed forces, you already had a tremendous diversity of 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 peoples from different regions. Um, from different walks of life, from the most, from kings to paupers. And they all end up in this space uh, of the armed forces. Um, they don't all speak the same language. They have vastly different cultures. Um, and so they're all coming together in the space of the military. And then, of course, uh, uh, in all of these colonial frontiers and, and trade frontiers, are, are these important relationships with allies, um, people who become mercenaries uh, working for the French or people upon whom, and I think this is really key also, it's a perspective that a military historian Wayne Lee and others have put forward, which is to say, we have bought a uh, hook, line and sinker, uh, a little, uh, you know, this this narrative that the great European empires went, you know, went and, and, and conquered uh, all of these peoples, they didn't. They were highly dependent on on their allies in these other parts of the world. Uh, they were dependent mm. on them for manpower. They were dependent on them for supplies. They were dependent on them to know how to live in these mm-hmm. drastically different climates to combat disease. This history is much more... Uh, sort of one of interdependency and sometimes, you know, straight up dependency, you know, thinking about sociability, thinking about what constructs allyship in a deeper way, what what makes an allegiance strong um, Mm -hmm. is part of the query here. And so really interesting discussions are happening in India, specifically uh, around language and cultural practice um, in order to build friendship uh, with individuals like Haider Ali Khan. And then, it, you know, in, in continental France, talking about, you know, what, what can bring these people together? So you have, so you have folks like uh, Maurice de Saxe, who was a marshal of France, uh, mounting a wartime theater uh, while on campaign in the Low Countries, uh, during the war of uh, of Austrian succession in the 1740s, and he and he builds this theater, and he loved theater, and he loved actresses uh, in in a way that mm. was uh, you know absolutely sinister. Um, in some mm. cases, we have those we have those stories of of, of rape and mistreatment uh, of, of actresses. Mm. Um, but you know, so so the gendered aspect of this of, of building masculine bonds. And masculine yeah. forms of entertainment, sort of, you know, at the expense of women, uh, is was definitely occurring. We want the Enlightenment to be the Enlightenment that I was reciting with my fancy Enlightenment voice. You know, we want it. <laughs> we want we want that to be the to, to be the Enlightenment. We want that to be the founding of the United States of America, the founding of the first Republic in France. But the reality is. It was much more complex and much darker, much, much, mm. much darker than that. And so, you know, while while this creative work is going on about military psychology, about building community, uh, d'Argenson, the Comte d'Argenson, talking about how a unit should try to comport itself like one would do in a salon, where people 
from more common classes, as well as high, high, high no- royals and, and nobles would come together and, and ostensibly be able to exchange on ideas in a productive and peaceful way that folks needed to look at each other in these army units, build esprit de corps in a similar way. That's again, that, that thought about civility. But, but this often you know, leaves women behind or, or actually uses them, attempts to use them and exploit them in order to build up a masculine ways of bonding. Let's talk for a minute, Christy, about the chronological spread of the book and the sort of arc of the narrative here. I mean, I think most people wouldn't flinch, you know, to see a book with Enlightenment in the title that then, you know, covers this period from Louis the Fourteenth to Napoleon. Like that might seem obvious to some people, but I guess I want to ask you a little bit about to say a little bit about that reach and especially those two bookends, you know, like mm-hmm. how that works, especially the Napoleon part. Like mm. I think I was thinking as I was reading the book about how the most like the closest my students have ever gotten to physical violence against one another was a class where I had them debating, you know, that worn out question about whether Napoleon is a child of the Enlightenment, oh, yeah. great destroyer. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never, I've never had my students be so mean to one another oh, as, no. in that, as in that discussion anyway, but it, I always think about it when I'm thinking about, you know, when Napoleon comes at the end of something and like mm-hmm. what he kind of means and the role that he plays there, but yeah, also Louis the 14th at the other end. So mm-hmm. just, you know, whatever you want to say about how you were thinking about what had to be in this book, where it would start, where it would end and, and, and what kind of story is being told across like the arc of these chapters. Mm-hmm. So as I went into the military archive, so this, this search for information. So I'm, I'm researching this, in, you know, between 2005 and 10. And so I'm able to get some sources that are published, right? Some some military treatises that have been published in order to understand that thought, but in order to know what was going on on the ground and also uh, to try to find these other voices, right? These other voices that I wanted mm-hmm. to center about people who were really... Uh, a voiceless uh, and 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 underrepresented uh, uh, in these other narratives. I needed to go into the military archive, and and Rafe Blaufarb uh, had written a fantastic book based on the One M, the series of of, of memoir, Mémoire et reconnaissance at the military archive, and so. So I went there with a pretty open mind, really not knowing much uh, and and just, you know, just to see what people were thinking and how much that applied to the dangerous liaisons. And, and, and <laughs> I not, yeah, so it was sort of started with this little little thing that got bigger and bigger. And then I, you know, figured out this this whole thing that was going on. But um, so as I looked in those memoirs, um, they sort of drew me backward Um into needing to engage with those the, the the last wars of Louis the Fourteenth and what was going on with that fiscal military state and the way that that the old approach to thinking about about military officers the old military system was really dysfunctional and so I was seeing some of the first memoirs crop up after that war of Spanish succession. Um, and the time of Louis XIV's death, so 1714-15, reflecting on that period. And Maurice de Saxe, who writes his reveries uh, in the period uh, that, that follows, is making reference to the conversations he was having with folks who had fought in uh, with Louis XIV. And so it seemed like a very natural and important starting point um, and also in some ways a status quo uh, ante uh, for for the changes that were going on. In terms of this discussion of crisis, military crisis in France, people had really pinpointed the Seven Years' War with all the, the loss that I described to you earlier. But, um, you know, from within the military, discussions had happened earlier. And I was also tracking in novels phenomena that had happened earlier and, and in 
the moralist philosophers of the 17th century who were already talking about issues with war. So there was a sense in which it really needed to begin there. Um, and I wanted to watch how some of those critiques of war by Pascal, by La Bruyère, by La, La Rochefoucauld are picked up later uh, by people like Voltaire. Um, and, you know, uh, again, hiding in plain sight in chapter th- 23 of Candide, um, <laughs> you know, and so we've been reading this and teaching this in high school for how long? How come we didn't under, how come nobody understood that Voltaire in, in showing this scene of an admiral in England being beheaded was referring directly to uh, something that happened during the Seven Years' War where Admiral Bing was defeated by Admiral de la Glaçonniere of the French. He was judged in court-martial as having been too conservative in his movements in native ba- in uh, a naval battle. He's killed uh, because of this. And so uh, Voltaire isn't making up some crazy scenario. He is commenting on court-martial policies, right? <laughs> so, right. so there's this way in which, you know, that some of this gets picked up by Enlightenment thinkers, by philosophes, by Voltaire in very specific ways. And then that, that there are these cultural changes. We see more of these conventions uh, these that were these gentlemanly cartels. Again, going back to that notion of the individual level of action uh, at a battle like Dettingen um, in, uh, uh, in 1743, uh, War uh, of, uh, uh, of Austrian Succession, where uh, Stare, where General uh, Stare on the, on the British side and Nui on the French side decide together that we are going to wage this battle with all of the, of the generosity and humanity possible. And they make this cartel that says we will not summarily execute prisoners, there will be a cost, a ransom for prisoners. We will uh, treat uh, the wounded no matter what side they're on and send them back under the general's passports. Uh, Passports were really fascinating at the time. They're not affiliated Mm. with each individual. um, Eddie Cola at Georgetown has done some really great work on this. Uh, So you actually travel under somebody else's passport. (laughs) So the wounded would be sent back. Uh, to their army under the under the uh, under the general's passport and uh, you know for safe passage you know the, these really important innovations are happening during the enlightenment that are the precursors to the geneva conventions that are the sort of the beginning thoughts about uh military psychology and it's an incredible again going to that question of affect incredible exploration of what people were going through after battle, during battle, after battle, and and while conducting sieges, and just while on campaign, just life on campaign being awful. Um, So this thinking about heroism in a broader way, um, a way that could include women, a way that could include indigenous peoples of North America, that could include people of color, uh, African-descended people who were located in the Caribbean, that could include people in the Indian subcontinent. You know, these were all innovations occurring at the time, um, as well as the sort of thought about the military community and esprit de corps, uh, alongside other reforms in martial punishment. Arnaud Guigné studies this, reforms in, in the military system, uh, for which uh, Choiseul is very, is very famous. You know, so there's this big moment. And then going to your students vicious debate is Napoleon, <laughs> is Napoleon right so there so the revolution happens the levé en masse the soldier is definitely a hero then and then uh, and then Napoleon who we just have to accept is a child of the enlightenment and and the breaker of the enlightenment he's doing both and he's <laughs> he's doing both and he's continuing some parts of uh, 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 of of military enlightenment thought, the sort of apotheosis in some ways of providing for his troops, of that emotional connection to troops. There's this quote uh, by this Captain uh, 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 Blaise who writes uh, sort of nostalgically of how the emperor would take his own uh, a legion of honor cross off of himself and fasten it to the to the chest of of a, of a soldier and um, and comparing this to Louis the Fourteenth who 
who thought nothing of his soldiers for whom soldiers were cannon fodder. So, so there's that side. And then there's just absolutely disastrous total war and annihilation and uh, including sadly of his own soldiers uh, in, in, in Russia. So, so, you know, that debate in this case just has to just has to stay where it is, which is he's both. He's both of those mm-hmm. things. Yes. <laughs> it was a terrible mistake. That I made. <laughs> Even a, I just wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> I've never asked that. <laughs> it was just a, anyway. Yes. Um, no, it's good. It's you got to engage about- them. Hey, it's good that they were passionate about this period of French history. We'll take it. We early modernists, we'll take it. <laughs> this is what happens when you get somebody who works on the 1960s teaching um, the 18th, 18th and early 19th century. So sideways. Um, okay, so Christy, after Napoleon, you know, how should we think about the legacies of this period, of this moment of the military enlightenment? through the 19th century into the whole post-1945 period that mm-hmm, I work on. Mm-hmm. Like, how, do you, how would you hope that historians of the, of the later 19th century, 20th, and, and even 21st centuries would, like, would learn from this book and, and be able to, to use it to think about the military, about humane, good war, mm-hmm. um, these other types of things in the, in the periods that they work on? Well, I think that, and I hope, I really hope that there is a lot to think about here. And I will tell you, it's sort of, I don't know what to think about it. And I want to be positive about it. But um, for example, the two translations that are getting underway of my book right now, uh, one is, uh, uh, is happening in Chinese and one is happening in Russian. And so I think, wow. yeah, it's very interesting that what we might recognize or think of and and you know with it with a grain of salt uh because we sort of drink the kool-aid of the west sometimes uh whatever that is uh in our own perspectives without knowing it but that but that you know states that could be seen as more authoritarian and and belligerent certainly uh would have you know, interest in thinking about this. Uh, and one would want them to be asking these questions. Um, the, the legacy of this period, of, of, this, of this moment of military enlightenment is as complex as the phenomenon was during the 18th century. There's good and bad. And I think the questions have to constantly be re-articulated surrounding uh, the, the, the military systems and, and political uh, entanglements, economic entanglements and interests that attend any particular period um, of history and of warfare. So as we think toward the, the 19th century, we have Clausewitz and these, and these major thinkers who I think are really sort of coming out of the Napoleonic era and trying to process it thinking about war from a phenomenological perspective. The sort of band of brothers uh, continues to uh, to be uh, explored uh, and has become really such a trope now. You know, it's just a thing, the band of brothers. Uh, it was mm-hmm. not a thing at the beginning of the 18th century. So right. it's really pretty incredible how that continued to develop. But then at the same time, the exclusions from the brand of brothers also remain. You know, uh, in uh, 2009, for example, the BBC uh, document program uh, found uh, unearthed some papers from World War II attesting to the fact that black colonial soldiers who made up around mm. two thirds of the free French forces were deliberately removed from the unit that led the allied advance into the French capital which was freed on, on, uh, on August 25th, 1944. So, there, so the racism, the, 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 the usage of colonized bodies, the exploitation of these people, um, and then the sidelining of these people when there is a symbolic moment that would commemorate heroism. And of course, we know that many of the troupe indigènes uh, who served mm-hmm. the French nation uh, were sort of brought together under this lib- liberal 
Republican promise that they would have citizenship, that they would have pensions, that they would be brought uh, into the state's care in a certain way. And this failed. This utterly Mm -hmm. failed. And, you know, uh, Gregory Mann, others have shown that, for example, West African veterans of the French Armed Forces had their pensions frozen at the 1959 rate, Mm -hmm. which meant receiving 61 euros a month, 61 euros a month, yeah. compared to 690 a month for metropolitan veterans as of 2006. So the heights and the devastating shortcomings of this period uh, ha- continue to our day. And, you know, in the, in the years of wars uh, on terrorism, this has also continued, you know, the question of, of citizens being spared, um, prisoners of war not being mistreated, the Red Cross being permitted to operate as a neutral humanitarian organization. This was complicated in questions of, of terrorism because terrorists are not considered to be official combatants. They fall outside the, uh, of the international laws of war, right? So yeah. they don't gain the rights that one would have under international laws of war. And so that opens up to all sorts of torture uh, and, and, and to practices that otherwise uh, are, are at least ostensibly uh, banned right. from conduct uh, in, in, in war. As we continue to use drones, which are mm-hmm. also uh, uh, part of the legacy of this thinking about sparing civilians, yeah. guess who's being traumatized? It's the people pressing the button to release uh, explosives in mm. in drone warfare people who are trying to you know who are literally pulling the trigger thousands of miles away so to my mind Roxanne and I'm very curious sort of you as a 20th century historian mm-hmm. as somebody who deals with nuclear weapons you know what what how, what your take is on on what we can learn um, but to my mind as long as war continues to happen, these goals of making war less bad, figuring out how to do that, until we can get to that era of perpetual peace, we need to be pursuing military enlightenment. I learned so much from reading this book as a kind of long genealogy of, of course, questions that I was thinking about all the time with respect to you know, soldiering, weapons, the relationship between conventional, nuclear, like all of these kinds of things come up in my own work. So I, I learned so much from from reading the book, Christy. You mentioned that the book is coming out uh, in a couple of translations. Uh, I guess I wanted to ask you if you have other things that you'd want to share about the legacies of the book uh, and, you know, what kinds of conversations you've had since it, it, it came out and what is next for you? Yes. Well, thank you. A lot, you. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> bar's high, bar's high. I'm setting the bar high. I like to set my bar high. You know, so the military enlightenment, I, I've just been really excited to see how it's being taken up. I will say that it has uh, pretty much generated uh, an entire subfield in military history. There are, uh, you know, the military enlightenment, that that expression, I did not invent that. Uh, John Lynn had used that expression. You know, it, it had been out there, but no one had really explored what it actually meant and certainly what it meant in this broader global frame. But uh, so in military history, it is booming. The military enlightenment is booming. Uh, I have people reaching out to me from all over the place uh, to talk about the military enlightenment. There are two edited uh, volumes that are underway right now about the military enlightenment, uh, sort of deeper dive into the the, um, operationalizing side uh, within uh, France. Um, there's one uh, that I'm doing with Hugh Davies, which is uh, on uh, on the military enlightenment from a, even a bigger global perspective. Hugh Davies has been doing military enlightenment in, in the UK and England. Eugene Miakinkov has written one about military enlightenment in Russia, finding analogous phenomena. So it's just completely taken off. Honestly, Roxanne, on the on the on the French history side, it has been a little bit slower to take off because Mm. enlightenment scholars 
maybe still like their old version of the Enlightenment. And, <laughs> uh, and so um, while people like- I've Colin, never heard anybody say that before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. These are di- ha- disciplinary hazards. Um, so, uh, you know, Colin Jones gave it this rave review, which just absolutely floored me. Um, and he said, you know, Christy Bikikro has turned an oxymoron into a truism. Um, you know, this absolutely must be the way that we view the Enlightenment now. And, uh, and you know, uh, Guy Rowling. NBD. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Woo! So, so you know, I, I'm really pleased at those nods and that, and that's, you know, some folks have embraced in that way. But I think in other ways, and I do, I have to wonder about the ways that my own identity uh, and perhaps my, my scholarly background in terms of being an interdisciplinary uh, researcher have played into this sense that what folks, what women of color know, a woman of color can't have a big idea that changes the shape of a field. (laughs) You know what I mean? We can't have those big ideas. There's a problem if it came from us. And, you know, it's been said to me by several people, most of the time, very, very generously, but it's also made me think when people have said to me, I wish I thought of that. And so, you know, I, I do uh, wonder about that, but the book, I think is just continuing to have its life as it's translated, as it's being, as people are engaging it. I'm so grateful to you for offering me this chance to talk about the book that will, you know, further get it out there as concepts to think about uh, in their genesis in this period and in this place and, and the way that they took shape in other places and at other times, the way that this type of thinking is in, is important now. So in general, I'm really pleased um, and, and I'm excited. I'm excited when people reach out to me and tell me the amazing things they're doing with this concept um, because it's, it's a big one and it's a malleable one and it necessarily means different things in different places at different times. So, so I really love that. Um, and it has led me to my current two book projects that I mm-hmm. am working on. Uh, so there's a picture of uh, this man. So the first in my book. So the first, the first project that I'll be working on at the Stanford Humanities Center next year, which I'm super excited to have another bit of time to really focus on this and, and to exchange with an amazing uh, community of scholars, is about the Chevalier de Saint Georges, uh, mm-hmm. who was a one of the most famous people of color in the 18th century French empire and beyond. You have, uh, you know, John Adams and different people writing about him in their letters. He was a fencer, uh, a virtuosic fencer, violinist, composer, conductor, who becomes the first commander of the first all black unit in the regular French army. So that sort of all black regular French army are, are sort of important here in the sense that, um, and this happens during the French Revolution, uh, because uh, usually troops that had people of color in them were irregular units. Uh, so they weren't sort of mm. viewed as, uh, you know, brought into the military establishment under the same auspices as this unit, uh, the Légion de Saint-Georges or the Légion des Américains. So my first book is about Saint-Georges, but it's sneakily not about him uh, because it's about race and gender. It's about generations of women of color, his grandmother, his mother, and the sort of African-descended maternal knowledge that is so key to his understanding of kinship and the world and how we get free. It's about privilege, the privileges that he is able to attain through through his military ties, um, through uh, music and through performing race in many cases. You know, these are very, very savvy people who understand processes of racialization and who navigate these systems. I'll tell you, he did not learn that from his white daddy. He learned that from his mother and from these and from the women uh, in his family, these African descended women in Guadeloupe who teach him about navigating these spaces 
um, and about mm. that goal of getting free. So, so that is the book that I'm working on now. I have also started working on a book um, that is about Black power and uh, not so much understood in the 20th century uh, American sense, um, but uh, really thinking about Blackness and about power um, in the 18th century and sort of the long 18th century and thinking about African descended identities in relationship uh, to that, uh, specifically looking at who I've discovered are five generations of uh, African descended uh, soldiers who are fighting in the Continental French Army. So I've done a bunch of archival work on them, Um, I have an upcoming trip to Benin uh, to talk to the descendants of some of these individuals. So um, this project has led me into anthropological work, into historical archaeology, into more uh, disciplinary transgression in order to tell the stories uh, of uh, of anti-Blackness, of Black power in their infancy in, in this particular uh, space and time. Well, that all sounds incredibly exciting. Christy, I am so grateful to you for taking the time to speak with me and, and for writing this, this wonderful book. Oh, well, it is for me to thank you, Roxanne. I truly appreciate it. Uh, you do so much for our community of scholars in uh, creating these podcasts. Uh, Folks, uh, tune in for more. Look at the backlist on the website. Uh, These (laughs) are so fun and informative to listen to. Um, I've absolutely loved uh, listening to them and I've learned so much. And, uh, And so thank you for this work you're doing and thank you for including me in it. 